the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The movie A League of Their Own is one of the most beloved baseball movies of all time. Today's guest, Erin Carlson, takes us on a journey into the story behind the all-female baseball league and the making of Penny Marshall's film. Erin is a culture and entertainment journalist and the author of three Hollywood history books, including I'll Have What She's Having and Queen Merrill. Her new book is No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of A League of Their Own, Big Stars, Dugout Drama, and A Home Run for Hollywood. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Erin, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the film A League of Their Own, can you very briefly give us a background about the story? Sure. A League of Their Own um, is the fictionalized story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It was a league that um, existed during World War II, and it involved all women teams. (laughs) Such a rarity in sports, especially baseball and male-dominated sports. So the league, you know, faded into obscurity after it ended in 1954 for a variety of reasons, one of them being the boys came home from the war. So the women, you know, went back to their daily lives. So the league, like, um, it, you know, totally, like I said, faded into obscurity, um, left the history books, And nobody really knew about it until the 1980s when the players began to reunite. Uh, PBS made a documentary about the league called A League of Their Own that Penny Marshall, the director, saw. And, you know, she being a big tomboy, um, self-described tomboy growing up in the Bronx in the 50s. You know, she loved sports. She loved baseball. She identified with um, these women that she saw in the documentary. They were funny and bawdy. And, you know, everything that Penny was in real life. So she wanted to pay tribute to them. So she had a um, feature film script worked out. um, And miraculously, that script made it into production, uh, an unusual film for the time. And it became a smash success at the box office. Mm -hmm. A League of Their Own made more money than the baseball movies we also love. So Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, the natural. Um, so it was like, and it remains the most successful baseball movie of all time. So it was really a genre outlier and remains beloved after all these years. And that is a very long answer. Well, you know, and the movie had a really unlikely cast of characters. I mean, you had Gina Davis and Tom Hanks, but then you had Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. What made Penny go with those types of actors? Well, Penny was amazing at casting people, amazing. She had a good eye for um, actors who could improvise, like Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. Um, Tom Hanks would go off script and do funny things and do unexpected things that Penny loved to work with and include in the film, in her films. Um, She had worked with him on Big, so she knew that she wanted him for Jimmy Dugan, kind of this lovingly uh, coach know who um is drunken kind of has been you know from the major leagues and 
now has been demoted to coach women's baseball. So she thought that he would be great for that. Gina Davis replaced Deborah Winger <laughs> in the part of Dottie Hinson, the best player on the league. Um, Deborah left the movie early on because she did not want Madonna <laughs> to be in the movie. She's like, you're going to make this into an Elvis movie, Penny. And Penny was like, no one tells me how to cast my movie. So Jadbar walked away with $3 million, you know, a pay to play. And um, she was okay with that, <laughs> obviously. Gina then replaced her. And Gina did not have any baseball experience. Um, she was not an athlete growing up, even though she was six feet tall. So she really had to hone her skills uh, in a short time over the four months of filming. So she was good enough that she had learned how to catch a pop fly behind her back. But she, all, she was also confident in her limited ability. She knew what she could and couldn't do. Whereas a lot of her co-stars were like, I have a double, but I don't want to use my double. I can do this stunt. Gina was like, no, you can do my stunt. She had like a number of stunt uh, doubles, uh, men and women. But, um, you know, she was extremely excellent at projecting how to play movie baseball. She had this steely game face, this fierce batting stance. You know, Rosie O'Donnell called her Gina the Machina. You know, <laughs> and in the scene where Rosie throws that, you know, Rosie throws a ball at her, um, it's a hostile throw. Gina catches it with her bare hand. <laughs> And, you know, you wouldn't know that that ball was anything less than a hard ball. But in reality, the ball was made of foam, and it was thrown to her from a short distance off camera. You I know, you're, you're right, Erin, because you were saying that Penny was a genius in her casting. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and you say, oh, you know, that part, somebody should have been doing this, and somebody would have been better there. But they really were perfectly cast. Oh, absolutely. And... um I think that's, um, to me, that's 50% of a good film. <laughs> the other 50% is the script. I think and the script was so good. And you need actors that can run with the material. That no crying in baseball scene where Jimmy is yelling. It's brilliant. At Rockford Peach. Poor yeah. Evelyn Gardner. No crying, you know, because he doesn't like what she did on the field. And he's like, um, he just goes crazy. Like one of those little league dads that, you know, I saw growing up that was yelling at their son. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I think he was doing. He was doing a bit on that. And they did that scene over, you know, many, many, many takes. They had the camera on Tom, and they had the camera on Biddy Schramm, who played the recipient of his, you know, verbal barrage. And she cried every time, you know, on cue. Like, she, she was um, excellent in that as well. But she also did not know the scene that she was supposed to film the scene that day because production was so chaotic often the um, actresses who played the rockford peaches would be sitting in their trailers all day not knowing what they were going to shoot so that day um, someone knocked on um, biddy's honey wagon door and was like okay it's time to film your big scene the scene that we cast you for and she was not prepared so those tears were you know tears of anxiety as well Mm-hmm. Why <laughs> was like, there oh so much God. chaos on the set? What was happening? And, um, you know, is that just Penny's process? Oh, yeah. Uh, Penny Marshall ran. Um, this was not an elegant set. <laughs> this was um, big and sprawling. And there were hundreds of cast and crew members. And one of the Rockford Peaches, um, I call them Rockford Peaches as if they were in real life. Um, the actresses, one of the actresses who played Rockford Peach, um, the actress who played Rockford Peach, Alice Gaspers, she um, paired this movie to a war movie, like, and they were all platoon members. Uh, and often you didn't know what was going on because it was just too big. <laughs> so she was like, we were, we were, the peaches were props that talked. So they spent a lot of time filming action shots and, you know, baseball vignettes. And they didn't know how Penny would piece that all together or if it was really going to, you know, end up in the movie theater. Megan Cavanaugh, who played Marvin Hoot, or who played Marla Hooch, um, said, is this going straight to video? People just didn't know. So when they saw the finished film in 1992, they were delighted. They're like, oh, this is a movie. 
but Penny Marshall had a thread in her head that only she could see. Um, she was not the best communicator and, um, she was rather passive on set. Whereas a lot of directors, um, I'm thinking Jim Cameron for some mm-hmm. reason. A lot of male directors have a sense of control and a God complex. Everything is top down and they control everything from um, the lighting to the setup um, to the costumes. And Penny had a, she did have a tight control more so than people uh, notice, but she was also just, um, she had this, there was a collective feeling on set that um, Penny did not have a God complex. You know, and that made people um, feel comfortable to do their jobs really well, uh, to wear multiple hats. Uh, Tom Hanks was not just an actor in the movie. Penny let him direct the C camera that shot scoreboard footage (laughs) because he wanted to direct in the future, and he did. He directed that thing you do. So it was just um, a feeling of chaos, but also fun and experimentation and creativity. And that was all because of Penny. Everyone had a great time on this movie, even though parts of it were torturous mm-hmm. to participate in. Well, it, it's kind of like life hours. was imitating art because what they were going through as a team was torturous. So it, it's like they were bringing those relationships into the film. Absolutely. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna. They had this amazing bond mm-hmm. off. Well, they were they were best friends, weren't they, back then? I don't know if they still are, but they were very close. They're still very close. And um, on in the movie, <laughs> everyone called them Roe and Moe. <laughs> Penny was like, Rosie, you teach Madonna how to play ball. Madonna, you teach Rosie how to set her hair. So they were written together as comic relief. Because Madonna, at that time in her career was not known for her acting. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she was a brilliant performer, but she hadn't found a movie that really um, leveraged that. Leveraged her shtick, her persona in a way uh, that, you know, um, made her pop on screen. I mean, she was great and desperately seeking Susan, but she was also so, um, her character, I think, was a, I don't want to go into film theory and all that, <laughs> but it was more of a projection of the main character played by Rosanna Arquette. But all the way May Mortobito, the brassiest Rockford Peach, that you know that was Madonna's character. She was a um, streetwise, cheeky, funny, tough, cool version of Madonna. So Madonna was in essence playing herself. And she looked really tough and cool, and she slid into bases. Truly, she did. She danced with Jitterbug. Um, she wore amazing vintage clothes. She had funny um, one-liners. I mean, I would argue that A League of Their Own was arguably Madonna's best work, mm-hmm. other than when she played herself in the documentary Truth or Dare. But, you know, she felt like she was underutilized. She did not like the um, sitting around and waiting (laughs) because Madonna is, she's proactive. She always likes to be doing something and she didn't like that aspect of making movies. So one day she wrapped herself on the set as an actor. You're not supposed to wrap yourself. Other people tell you, you can go home, (laughs) but Madonna went back to her rental in Indiana and, um, Penny was like, Mo, where's Mo? This is my Penny impression. And everyone's like, well, she went back to her rental house. Penny was livid. She started yelling. She's like, I'll write her out of the movie. I'll make her pregnant. And, you know, she kept repeating that. Word got back to Madonna. And when Penny got home later that night, there was a very contrite voicemail from Madonna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> saying that she would never wrap herself again. You know, there were um, some moments of drama on set, but it, it, you know, a lot of that was um, due to the rigors of filming and having to adjust that and adjust to that. And uh, Madonna was, um, um, you know, building her empire, as she would tell people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was um, in the process of um, 
creating her own record label imprint, you know, Maverick. Um, and then, you know, and she was in talks to play Evita in the movie adaptation of the musical. And she was writing her um, coffee table erotica book called Sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she was doing a lot of things and she felt the movie was holding her back. But when she eventually saw it, she she did like it. Yeah. Which was a big win because Madonna is a tough critic. <laughs> Why do you think after some uh, 30 years that this movie is still a home run? Why do you think it has stood the test of time? Oh, my gosh. Um, first of all, um, it's a really, really funny script by um, Babalu Mandel and Lola Gans, um, two of the best comedy writers ever. Uh, it had wonderful performances, especially by Tom Hanks and Gina Davis. And it's just an example, 30 years later, of really excellent and epic filmmaking. You know, it has a universality to it. Mm -hmm. Um, It brims with a love of baseball. You know, even if you don't know about baseball, you see this movie and you end up loving it. (laughs) You know, um, there's such a passion and joy for the sport. And it's also about something, you know, real, something um, more than just baseball. It's the history, the fictionalized history of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, this obscure women's baseball league that nobody knew about until Penny made a movie about it. Um, And the women of that league and the surviving members are so grateful for this movie because – it made them feel that they were important. They, you know, contributed to the sport. Um, it made them feel that they just weren't a footnote in some, you know? Right. Well, they were trailblazing women. You know, they, they broke down gender barriers. Oh, absolutely. At the time, though, in the 40s and 50s, they never felt that they were doing that, you know, or they didn't voice that or it didn't, you know, um, it wasn't a thing that crossed their minds. Uh, the league was invented in 1943 by uh, Philip K. Wrigley, the chewing gum magnet of Chicago, mm-hmm. the owner Field. of the Chicago Cubs, <laughs> to keep the sport of baseball alive during World War II. As all the young boys, you know, were leaving the minors and going off to fight the war, so he was like, "I'm going to try this like women's baseball gimmick. You know, fill smaller ball fields. You know, try to get an audience." and um, so the women didn't feel like they were feminist trailblazers. They really felt like they were at the forefront of, you know, they were at the front line doing their patriotic duty. Like maybe they weren't off fighting Hitler, but they were keeping this beloved American pastime alive. And they really were. Um, thousands and thousands of people went to go see them. And at first they laughed at them because here were these women, <laughs> you know, behaving rebelliously, I believe, in a macho sphere, you know, treading on macho turf. And so um, you had a lot of men, spectators, coming and laughing at these women. But then they kept coming back because they they learned that the players were really good, like they could play ball. And women could play ball. And um, for a short time in American history, they had their own league. And it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it lasted. So the women, while they were living it, they weren't thinking about the impact they were making. But in the years that followed, what type of an impact do you think they've had on young girls? Um, That's a good question. Um, So in the 1980s, if we're flashing back Mm -hmm. (laughs) decades after the league dissolved, the women started reuniting and then word got out. You know, reporters sniffed a hot human interest angle, a good story. PBS made the documentary. And then um, despite all that coverage in that decade, that decade, the movie, <laughs> not until the movie was made, did their story, be, you know, th- their story have greater awareness. More people knew about the league thanks to that movie. Um, so to answer their impact, their impact was immeasurable, even the fictional versions of themselves. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not the real women, but like the Gina Davises and the Lori Petties and the Madonnas um, made a huge impact. The year after A League of Their Own hit theaters in 1993, there was a noticeable spike 
like a really big spike in the number of high school girls who signed up for softball. And I called that the league of their own effect. Because for the first time, I think if you were a young girl athlete and you were in that sweet spot, that mar- that uh, target market, you know, very young girls sitting in the theater and you're used to you're used to watching boy movies, you know, Stand By Me, um, The Sandlot came later. But that was representative of what girls saw on the big screen, not teams of girls, teams of boys. So if you were in the, if you were like 11 or 12 and you were sitting in the theater to see A League of Their Own, the movie was a revelation to you because you had um, girls. I don't want to call them girls, but um, a lot of the actresses were in their early 20s. Um, You had women, you know, acting funny and loud and opinionated and amazing and just all of the things that girls weren't allowed to be on screen at the time but were in real life. Mm So you had that female friendship and camaraderie. You had the victory song um, that I always sang with my friends at recess. And um, for, I was not an athlete growing up. I was more artistically inclined. But for young athletes, the character of Dottie was a revelation. Mm-hmm. Because for the first time, they had seen a character, character who represented them or, um, you know, and provided an example of what they could be in the future. Um, Dottie did not throw like a girl in quotes. I hate that phrase to this day. She threw like an athlete. She demonstrated competence and excellence on the field. So Abby Wambach, um, the World Cup soccer champ, (laughs) and then um, multiple gold medalists told me that Dottie was the reason she ended up playing soccer. (laughs) Not baseball, but soccer, because she's like, okay, this woman you know, takes no prisoners, she's confident, and she inspired Abby to lean into her greatness. And once again, that book is No Crying in Baseball, The Inside Story of a League of Their Own. Erin, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Uh, You can um, go to my website at erinlcarlson.com. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. A cancer diagnosis can be scary. It's easy to get caught up in the cycle of fear and anxiety. Hypnosis creates a powerful mind that promotes healing. At Metro Hypnosis Center, we specialize in navigating the cancer journey in person or online by providing custom audio scripts, group healing circles, one-on-one sessions, and other programs all designed to support and empower you. To learn more, visit MetroHypnosisCenter.com or call 201-477-0265. Hypnosis is a natural complement to medical treatment plan and not meant to replace it. We all want to live a happy, 
productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Doreen Steenland, an ICF certified coach who uses neuroscience and coaching to harness the power of our brains. As a transformational neuro coach, Doreen changes brains one thought at a time. Doreen is the founder of Living Full Life Coaching. She is here today to discuss triggers for threats and rewards in your brain. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So, Doreen, how does the brain detect threats and rewards? Okay, well, there's, there's really five domains that affect whether we receive stimuli as a threat or clock that, that stimuli as a reward. And I'm going to go to um, Dr. David Rock's uh, uh, SCARF acronym. And there's these five areas that when we, when we are threatened in any way, um, will send us into almost a fight, flight, or freeze response. So one of the first areas is the S in SCARF, and it's status. If your sense of personal worth or status is threatened, right, it sends us into a fight, flight, or freeze mode in the brain. Um, on the flip side, if, if we build someone's status up, it gives us a little hit of dopamine, right, and, and triggers a reward. The, the second domain that we, we look at is the C, and that stands for certainty. It's a sense of what the future holds for us. So we've noticed all of us during this time of COVID that there's been so much uncertainty between COVID and the recession and all of the financial things, there's an uncertainty and it causes us to react in a stressful, a, a, a fight, flight, or freeze response. Whereas when we're going into a meeting and we can outline what's going to happen before we get there for, for the people in the meeting, it really helps to calm down the, the whole fight, flight, or freeze response. The A in SCARF is autonomy. We all need a sense of control over our lives, right? We all want that sense of control. And when that is threatened, obviously, it, you, your brain doesn't know the difference, whether it's a real threat of, to your physical harm, or it's just a threat of losing control over the situation. The R stands for relatedness, and that's a sense of safety with others, right? How safe do you feel in, in the office that you're in right now? How safe do you feel in the meeting? All of these things work to either increase the threat in our brain or activate rewards. And the last but not least, and I think we can all relate to this in some way, even young kids can relate to this, is the F for fairness. We all want to be treated fairly, right? And when we're not, especially our kids, they notice that somebody's piece of pie is a little bit bigger than theirs, and it's a threat to them, right? Are there markers we can use to determine this? Yeah, I mean, these this scarf domain here, um, all of these five things are markers that we can be on the lookout for. We could be on the lookout for which ones of these five markers, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, or fairness, is, is a weak area for us. Which area do we react and feel threatened when it's challenged? And so each of us can, can be on the lookout for these markers. So when we understand these markers, what happens? Well, it gives us a little more um, control over our life, a little more autonomy, right? Because we can notice that this might not be a real threat, but our body is telling us there, there is a threat here. So we can do little techniques to calm ourselves down and get us back to a regulated place where we are... are able to think clearly and react um, with clarity and focus instead of the state that we get into when we are in a threat mode, it causes us to feel foggy. It causes us to lose focus. It causes us to um, not think clearly and react in ways that, that the patterns that we have chosen in the past to react in which might not be helpful in the situation. Right. And I think that's the key, that we can become more in control of the way we are reacting and responding as opposed to it being that automatic knee-jerk reaction. 
yes, we do not need to be a victim to um, our circumstances. We can really learn to become mindful of what's happening inside us and, and learn to, to um, really get ourselves balanced again and back to that place of regulation. This is something that can benefit any one of us. And so if you would like to learn more about this topic or Doreen and her work, you can visit livingfulllifecoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Doreen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Doreen. We'll be right back. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Many people stay in jobs that don't fulfill them because they're afraid of the unknown. Today's guest, Alyssa Randall, was a chief marketing officer who worked in the field for most of her adult life. When her position was eliminated, Alyssa received what she calls a wonderful gift. The same afternoon, she started a headshot photography business. According to Alyssa, life happens, and while it may be scary, it can also be a fantastic adventure. Alyssa is CEO and lead photographer of All About Headshots. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So, Alyssa, tell us what happened the day that your life changed. Yeah. So, uh, my position was eliminated May 19 of 2022. And that afternoon, I started my headshot photography business. Um, If we back up a little bit from there, my brother, who is also a photographer in Hawaii, a few months prior, we were in the city, uh, actually going to BNH, the mothership for all photographers. Mm-hmm. And David said to me, you should be a headshot photographer. And I said, come again. I have no idea what it is. Can you please spell what you're talking about? I've never heard of it. And then I trained under the premier headshot photographer in the country, if not the world. And so on May 19, 2022, when my position was eliminated, I thought, well, I'm starting this business. And so, so, Alyssa, this isn't something that you had always dreamed about doing. No, not at all. I was a street photographer. That's what I did. That's really uh, where I spent my days, um, you know, capturing people where they were, having a great time doing it on my free time. But um, no, this was this was an extreme pivot, and I I had purchased life. Because I didn't own life. I was not, a, a, I didn't use life in photography. And so I purchased life. I did not know how to use them. And I called BNH that afternoon and expressed that I was having some difficulty using these lights. And they put me in touch with the rep for the life. And uh, the rep's name is Cliff. Uh, I called Cliff and said, Well, I just left my job. I'm starting my business. Will you please come over and teach me how to use these lights? And he came over that Saturday. And taught me how to use the light. And a business was born. Well, what I love about your story, so many people, when they want to pivot or start a business, they use these reasons or all these excuses. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. But you went for it. And, and you're like me. That's what I did with my business. I went for it. And then you figured it out along the way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I spoke with an executive headhunter and said, well, I'm, I think I'm starting this business or I'm starting this business, let's talk in September. And we, we spoke in September and I said, let's speak in December. We spoke in December and I said, I'm not going back to corporate. <laughs> this is it. And, um, you know, it's funny. My first paying client was June 24, 2022. And um, it's, it's been incredible. It's been absolutely incredible. And, and so many people reach out to me to ask me how I did it, how I made this pivot, because like you said, a lot of people are afraid. Mm-hmm. And so how did you do it, Alyssa? How, you know, going from corporate to being an entrepreneur, how did you make that pivot? All I could say is I just did it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I worked with Cliff on that Saturday and then I built my portfolio. So that's why I say my first paying client was June 24, because I was building up my portfolio and it's funny, my first paying client, once I took the photos of her, she said, oh, I'm paying you for these photos. And that was it. That was it. Your business isn't easy because 
we all hate having our pictures taken. I mean, we're so critical of ourselves. And what have you learned from photographing people in such a personal way? What would you have you learned about human nature? You know, I think there's a lot of psychology and photography. And I was once told that I'm living my life's purpose, which is helping people see themselves for the first time. And I've had more women cry in my studio when they see themselves for the first time, as, as recent as yesterday. So uh, when people see their image and they go through the session with me, there's this emotional shift that happens. I hear from everyone that they really despise having their photo taken, that they feel very vulnerable. They feel like it's worse than going to the doctor. But then after the session, they express how much fun they've had and really what they've learned about themselves, too. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, I had a young woman who came to the studio. And before, before the session, I always have a styling consultation with my clients to help them prepare for the session. And during the styling consultation, she was saying, I don't know what I want to do with my life. You know, I'm doing this, but I think I want to step out of this. And I said, you know what? Bring clothes for, for full body portraiture as well. We're going to do that in addition to headshots. And during we were talking and, and she was sort of you know, ruminating different ideas in her head. And at the end, she said, I, I know what I want to do now. I mean, it sounds crazy. But, but going back to there's, there's absolutely psychology and photography. And you can see this emotional shift happening during the session. Why do you think we're so critical of ourselves? Oh, yeah. People are so critical. Uh, you know, it's funny when we when we look at the images on the on the monitor, because I shoot tethered, which means to a monitor, people will zero in on their nose or their laugh lines or or whatever it is. Uh, I just think it's society. It's society. We're a very visual society. Uh, and and I think people are just hard on themselves. But you have to remember how, how beautiful you are, right? How, how, how engaging you are. And, and Alyssa, what do you do to make someone see themselves in that beautiful light? Well, I coach them during the session. Uh, what do I do to help them? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, just, just interacting with them mm -hmm. and, and helping them become so comfortable and relaxed during the session uh, I think that really goes a long way. In addition, a lot of my clients will do hair and makeup prior. And then for men, we do grooming as well. But I think that helps people relax also. Yeah. Because when was the last time that you were able to really step out of and be pampered? And I do short sessions, sure, for corporate or somebody who calls and says, my boss said, said I need to get a headshot and it's quick. But my normal session is long, and it's just these hours spent on you, pampering you, giving you what you need. And uh, I really, I, I just think it just helps people really relax mm -hmm. and in, in the moment. And what advice would you offer to someone who's listening to us right now that wants to start a second act? Oh, just go for it. Just go for it. Uh, you know, tap, in, tap into your network. Don't forget you're never alone. People are there to give you ideas and help you. But just go for it. It's amazing. It's amazing. I can't express how amazing it is to be an entrepreneur and be able to help so many different people. And if somebody's thinking about taking that pivot, I mean, sure, you have to think about um, – obligations and things like that, but you can do it. You can absolutely do it. Don't be afraid. I know there's a little bit of fear in there, but don't be afraid. Yeah. Harness the fear. And, and don't be afraid it. of what you that. don't know, because you don't have to know everything up front. You figure it out as you go along. Exactly. It's your own business. So you can even make up the rules as you go. And what I mean by that is, you know, I started with a long session and a short session, and clients say, but I'd like something in the middle. Sure, absolutely customize it so that they're delighted. And Alyssa, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? So the name of my company is All About Headshots by Alyssa Randall. So the URL is allabouthedshots, with an S, dot com. 
And once again, that's allabouthedshots.com. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Are you often breathless? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for stress reduction through relaxation and sound meditation. Do you also experience chest pain, heart palpitations, disrupted sleep, confusion, dry mouth, booziness, spastic muscle contractions in your hands and feet? If this sounds like you, then you might be breathing in a way that causes chronic hyperventilation. It is the hyperventilation that results in your symptoms, which also go hand in hand with some forms of anxiety. There's good news though. If you feel anxious and you also have the symptoms I described, then learning how to breathe in a relaxed manner can alleviate your symptoms and decrease your anxiety. Relaxed breathing can be learned. It can also result from general relaxation. When the mind quiets down and the body releases tension, breathing tends to normalize. One way to train yourself to relax is through sound meditation. Here's one person's response to sound meditation. Quote, very relaxing to the point that I was in a deep relaxing state and almost asleep. Unquote. I'm Allison Ayati and I want to help you relax. Go to livingthesoundlife.com. The Sound Life is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Hi, this is Joan Herman. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, tips to be a successful, sought-after radio and podcast guest, I provide information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. to your health. Joining us today to talk about addiction recovery is Dr. Anthony Accurso, the Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Newbridge Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Accurso. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Doctor, I recently read an article in which an expert stated that the addiction crisis is deadlier than ever before. Would you agree with that statement? Yes and no. Uh, We know that in the setting of the current addiction situation, there are more drug overdose deaths per year in this country than there have ever been before. Some themes uh, continue uh, throughout. You know, addiction has been a component of the human experience for a long time, but our current situation uh, makes living with a substance use disorder um, sometimes even more difficult than it, than it has to be. And, you know, it's a difficult situation just by nature. Do you think it's the type of drugs that are on the market? I attended a workshop that was about opioids and fentanyl, and they were talking about how today they take any type of drug, like a Lipitor or something, and they crush it up, and they're mixing it in with the drugs that they're selling. Do you think that's having an impact on these overdoses? So when a drug is used from the uh, illicit market, from the street supply, there's no guarantee about what the product is. And and that's the main difference. Drugs are drugs, whether they're coming from pharmaceuticals or whether they're coming from sort of a homemade pharmaceutical. But the problem is there's no quality control on the street supply. So the the true danger of a street-acquired drug is that oftentimes the drug that somebody buys on the street will be pressed milk sugar and then just a dusting of very potent opioid, usually fentanyl. And you can imagine the problem with that is that if somebody gets a pill that has too much fentanyl in it, they take what they think is their normal dose, and it turns out to be a much higher dose. And that's when people tend to overdose. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the luxury anymore of, of being a dumb kid. You know, years ago when kids were experimenting with drugs, they made mistakes or, or they, you know, they did something that didn't necessarily kill them. But what you just described, it's like one time is all it takes to end a life. Well, you know, there is a sad truth in that. You know, I think we all have to move past sort of a 1980s Nancy Reagan war on drugs kind of situation. You know, we we need to think people are going to use drugs. How do we prevent people from dying? And to your point, you know, children will often experiment. Uh, Teenagers will experiment. Young adults will experiment. Old adults will experiment. But there are things that make sense that can help prevent people from overdosing on the fentanyl. for instance, if we had readily available fentanyl test strips, 
uh, fentanyl test strip can tell you whether the cocaine product that you bought has fentanyl in it, whether the Xanax that somebody said they're selling you is actually Xanax or whether it has fentanyl in it. Similarly, an opioid overdose can be cured with a miraculous cure called naloxone, brand name Narcan. And Narcan should be every bit as available as a fire extinguisher. Narcan should be available anywhere there's a first aid kit because if somebody overdoses, the naloxone can save a life. That was the training. That was the workshop that I had attended. It was Narcan training. Yeah. Um, So you are, uh, in, in taking a naloxone training, you're showing real citizenship because you have the ability to save a life. Just like people for the last 30 or 40 years have been taking CPR classes in high school so that they'll be ready to react to do CPR or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Um, The reason that some people carry a mask in their backpack so that they could do CPR when they need to. By that same token, many of us should be carrying Aloxone with us because you never know when somebody is going to have an overdose. And it could be someone who's close to you. It could be a brother or sister, a parent or a child. It could be a neighbor. It could be somebody you know in your neighborhood. Is addiction closely linked to mental health issues? Addiction and other mental health disorders, they overlap. Um, Some people with substance use disorder primarily have a substance use disorder, and that's it. Some people with behavioral health issues have no substance use disorders at all. But then there's a big overlapping gray area. Some people have a substance use disorder, but chaotic drug use will cause mental health problems in our society. Having to come up with enough money to acquire drugs, having to deal with the stigma of using drugs, the judgment that people will put on people, that will cause mental health problems. That will cause depression in people. Uh, On the flip side, people usually use drugs for a reason, and some people have underlying mental health issues. And sure enough, a lot of the drugs that people uh, use, sometimes misuse, do have therapeutic effects. They make people feel better, at least initially. But most of the drugs that cause problems for people uh, involve issues called tolerance and dependence. So people will need to use more and more of a drug in order to get the same effect. That's tolerance. And people will become dependent on it which means that if they don't get the same dose of the drug they got the day before, they start to feel worse. They start to feel something called withdrawal, and that can make the mental health problems worse. So a behavior that made sense initially, maybe someone was treating their mental health problem with a drug, then that behavior makes less and less sense as the drug becomes more and more uh, difficult to use as the tolerance builds up and uh, the drug becomes less effective at treating the mental health disorder. So... um, the two conditions often coexist. You just mentioned that there's a stigma, that there's judgment. Often when someone thinks or or talks about a person who's addicted, there is a lot of judgment because we tend to think, well, they made this choice to be an addict. Does a person make that choice or is this a disease? In the addiction medicine community, we absolutely believe that addiction is a disease. It is a disease of the choice organ in the brain but it is a medically treatable disease, a chronic disease, and its outcomes are similar to outcomes we have for high blood pressure or diabetes. You know, not everybody who has high blood pressure successfully treats it, but we know the treatment works for high blood pressure. We know the treatment works for diabetes. And by the same token, we have powerful treatments for addiction. Uh, And the, the biggest issue holding us back from success treating addiction is the stigma that people feel asking for help. So doctor, if someone has a friend or a loved one that they believe is in trouble and they're trying to get that person help, but the person is unwilling to accept or recognize an addiction, what can be done? What can those loved ones do to help? This situation where a loved one is using drugs, perhaps in a way that isn't uh, healthy for them, is, is profoundly common. The issue that we want to push is that Continuing to be supportive and loving for a person is probably the most important issue. Uh, There is a concept of tough love, that we have to cut somebody out of our our lives until they stop using. That has not been borne out by data, and a lot of people have regret when that happens and then there's a very bad outcome with the the family member. So uh, first and foremost, I try to say continue to remain supportive of the patient, loving of the patient, you know, while putting in the boundaries that are necessary to keep yourself safe. Also of importance is encouraging that loved one to access care. 
And treatment takes many forms. So some, some people with substance use disorder will respond beautifully well to medications. And we have medicines that can help them. They have to find a provider who's willing to work with them. Um, other people respond very well to groups. Uh, and there are groups within the medical establishment and there are groups outside of the medical establishment. But we know that some people will do well with medicines and groups. Some people will do well with groups and no medicine. Some people will do well with individual therapy, um, talking their problems out with an experienced therapist, uh, ideally one with some addiction medicine experience. But whatever combination works for a person, that's what they need to access. And so a family member can help them to do that. And where can a person turn to for help? Somebody who's looking to access care anywhere in the country can call the SAMHSA National Helpline at 800-662-4357. Within New Jersey, we have 844-REACH-NEW-JERSEY. And within uh, New York uh, State, people can contact OASAS at 518-473-3460. We at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center, we view addiction and substance use disorder as a very treatable medical condition. And we have many different options available for people, uh, including medications, behavioral health interventions, outpatient programs, residential treatment programs. Somebody who's wishing to access Bergen-Newbridge can call our access center at 800-730-2762. Dr. Kershaw, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, John. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.